Well, we are getting very close to the end of our study of the Gospel of Mark. We're in the Gospel of Mark chapter 15. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, you can find the text printed for you in your bulletin as well. I was watching a show on Netflix last week that a friend of mine has described as kind of a technological twilight zone sort of television show. Uh, And in this particular episode, people's dark secrets were discovered by computer hackers, uh, ranging from internet porn to sending racist emails um, to someone arranging a meeting with a prostitute, all all kinds of things like this, things that people want to keep in the dark. And the internet hackers found these things out and they told people that unless you go and do what we tell you to do, we're going to expose your secrets to the entire world. And so the, the first person, they, had, they were blackmailing him, and he went and he had to meet somebody who was also being blackmailed. And the first person brought the second person a cake. And then he took his picture, and the people let him go, so we're not going to blackmail you anymore. So this guy with a cake has to deliver it to someone, and he delivers it to someone in ex- whose secret has also been exposed, but they don't let him off the hook. And the two of them have to go together and to take this cake somewhere else. And then they get a message from the hackers that says, reach into the cake. And so they reach into the cake, and there's a gun. And they say, one of you's got to be the getaway driver. One of you's got to go in and rob the bank, or we're telling everybody what you've done. And so the guy goes in, and he robs the bank, and he comes back out. And they say, you need to go to this spot. Take the money to this spot. And he takes the money to this spot. And there's someone else there who's being blackmailed. And, and they meet, and they say, okay, now you've got a battle to the death. Are we going to expose your secret and every step of the way the people went along with what they were being commanded to do by the by the hackers they complied with their demands why why do they do that i think the answer is in the word shame Uh, it's the same thing that would drive probably all of us to never come back again if our worst secrets were displayed on the wall of the cafeteria for everyone to see we probably all run from the room as fast as we could to never come back because we would be uncovered, exposed, shamed. Uh, Shame, I think, is what Peter felt. We looked at, at this a little bit last week. What Peter felt on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion when he denied that he even knew Jesus. Uh, we've all felt shame. Brene Brown writes that the only people that don't experience shame uh, are, are basically sociopaths. Uh, she says people without the capacity for empathy or social connection are really the only people who don't experience shame. We all have shame. We all have shame. And we're all afraid to talk about shame. And the less we talk about shame, the more control it has over our lives. So this morning we're going to talk about shame. Uh, and aren't you glad you're here? Um, we're going to talk about the reality of shame, our remedy for shame, and then God's remedy for shame. Uh, so look with me, Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. 
Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But as the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray together. Now, Father, this is a, a heavy text uh, that we come to this morning. It's a heavy subject, so I pray for, for grace, uh, for my speech, and grace for our ears, and grace for our hearts, uh, that we would be changed by seeing Christ crucified. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, I want to, first of all, talk this morning, I want to talk for a minute about the reality of shame, the reality of shame. And I want to start by trying to define shame for us. Uh, Brene Brown writes this way, she says that shame is the fear of disconnection, the fear of disconnection. She says it's the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to or a goal that we've not accomplished makes us unworthy of connection. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. 
Uh, Sammy Rhodes, who is the RUF campus minister at USC, put it this way, it's the feeling you get when you suddenly realize you're underdressed for a party. When you show up late to a meeting thinking you're right on time. Or when your card gets declined buying coffee at Starbucks for your financial advisor. Uh, Ed Welch, in his book, Shame Interrupted, put it this way, Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Uh, Trying to make the distinction between guilt and shame, one counselor said that guilt is the, uh, the awareness of failure with regards to a standard. Shame is a sense of failure before someone else's eyes, before the eyes of someone who's looking at me, whether it's God or myself or other people. Um, Shame. But maybe defining it isn't the best way to get at it because, you know, shame is something that you, you feel in your gut as much as you define it and parse it and explain it. Uh, Ed Welch asked a group of of 100 students, they're all in their 20s, he said, how many of you have ever experienced shame? And then to kind of up the ante a little bit, he said, well, wait, how many of you have ever experienced debilitating shame? And everybody in the room raised their hand. It's very real. It's very powerful in our lives. See if you can relate to any of these, and and some of these are, I've taken from Brene Brown, some of them from from Welch, some of them are, are, are my own. Uh, shame is getting laid off and having to tell my pregnant wife. Shame is having someone ask, when are you due when I'm not pregnant? Shame is raging at my kids. Shame is my boss calling me an idiot in front of one of my clients. Shame is my wife asking me for a divorce and saying she wants children but not with me. Sharing, uh, shame is hearing my parents fight through the walls and wondering if I'm the only one who feels this afraid. Sexual violation brings shame. Being verbally or physically abused brings shame. Constant criticism from people you care about brings shame. Addiction brings shame. Poverty brings shame. Uh, Avoiding shame is what causes us to, to push back when someone pushes us. We feel shame that we aren't better parents. Shame can keep us from having people into our homes. Shame's, shame paralyzes us and keeps us from trying things that we're afraid we might fail at and be exposed. Uh, for women, it can be anything less than looking perfect and doing perfectly and being perfect brings shame. You're never enough. Never enough at home. Never enough at work. Never enough is shame. For men, shame is failure. Shame is being wrong. Shame is uh, admitting weakness of any type. Uh, our culture, uh, people who study this say this really more, has traditionally been more of a, <clears throat> a guilt culture than a shame culture, although you could argue there's a good deal of shame culture uh, in, in the Old South. Uh, but social media is driving us to become, and the internet is driving us to become more and more of an honor-shame culture. Do people like my post? Do people like the pictures that I put up? Did I say the right thing? Are the right people commenting on what I said? Am I included in the right social circles? Shame. We've all experienced shame. 
Is everybody, everybody good and uncomfortable now? Uh, even if you haven't put a word to it before, you felt some of those things. You felt the reality of shame. Well, what do we do with it? What's our remedy for our shame? Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, after God created Adam and Eve, we're told that the man and his wife were naked and that they felt no shame. They're innocent. They hadn't done anything wrong. They were comfortable. They were free. There was, there was no feeling of shame. There was no feeling of condemnation. But then they disobeyed God and we read that their eyes were open and that they knew that they were naked and that they immediately sewed fig leaves together to try to cover themselves, to try to cover their shame. It was their remedy. And that's our remedy for our shame as well. We try to cover it and, and hide it. Uh, Dan Allender tells a story. He said it was uh, his first winter in Colorado. And they got hit with one of those, well, I guess maybe it was fall still, they got hit with one of those September Colorado snowstorms and nobody was really expecting, or at least he wasn't because he was new there. And as he was driving down the highway, he realized that he didn't have any washer fluid uh, for the windshield. For the windshield. Uh, and so, you know, it's just crusting up. If you've ever been in snow like that, and the wipers just can't get it off quite. And so you kind of get to reach your hand out and try to knock some of the debris off. And so he finally pulls into this gas station. And he walks up to the checkout person and he asks, Do y'all have any of that? And, and he had one of the kind of those moments where you can't remember the word you're trying to think of. And he finally communicated to her somehow windshield wiper fluid. And she pointed, it's, it's right there. It's this huge pyramid of blue bottles of windshield wiper fluid directly behind him. And so he goes and, he, and he, he gets it and he buys it and he's walking out to his car. He said he thought at that moment, I, like, I don't know where this goes. Like, he, he was not very mechanically inclined. And so he has no idea what to do with the windshield wiper fluid. And there's a mechanic there. And so he goes in kind of sheepishly because he's a guy and he's supposed to know how all this stuff works. And he's like, could you tell me like which side of the car the windshield wiper fluid goes on? Because it goes on the right side. And so he goes out to the car and he stands there for a minute and he goes, does he mean the right side when I'm sitting in the car? Does he mean the... The right side when I'm looking at the car. And so he, he walks back into the mechanic because, because he, he can't figure this out. And, and he says, did you mean the right side when I'm looking at the car, the right side? And the mechanic says, do you, do you want me to help you? He said, yeah, that would be great. So they go out to the car and the mechanic's got the washer fluid now. And Ed Welch is, I mean, uh, but Dan Elder is standing there and the mechanic says, pop the hood. And he said at this point, he'd actually popped the hood once, but it had been on a, a really old car where you reached into the grill of the car and pulled a lever and it popped that way. And he says, well, don't you just stick your finger in the grill and it pops somehow? And the guy says, there's a, there's a lever inside the car. He's like, oh, oh. So he goes and he sits down and he can't figure out what he's supposed to pull. And so finally the mechanic is like looking through the window too what you what are you doing? He's like, don't you know where the level lever is to pop the hood? And Alner at this moment says, it's not my car. It's, it's not, it was his car. But he's like, it's, it's, it's not, my, I don't know, I've never been in this car. It's, it's not my car. Okay? So, so why did he do, why did he lie in the midst of that? 
is shame, right? I mean, that's a funny story about shame, but that's, that's what it was. Like, I don't want to be the guy that doesn't know how to pop the hood to my car, so I'm just going to lie about it to cover my shame. So we have like these, these silly instances of covering our shame, but then they go to, to very deadly instances of covering our shame. Uh, R.A. Dickey is a new pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. I watched him pitch the other night. He's probably one of the best knuckleball pitchers the last 20 years uh, in Major League Baseball. He won the Cy Young Award in 2012. But one day, he started swimming uh, off the coast. And he basically, he was going to try to swim far enough where he would lose, he would drown. He was trying to drown himself. It's like, I'm just going to swim until I can't swim anymore, and then I'm going to drown. Now, why in the world was he trying to drown himself? It was because of the shame of sexual abuse years ago. And he didn't know what to do with that. And so he said, I just can't keep covering it. I'm just going to swim until I kill myself. He was rescued by a, a passing boat, though. And, and at that point, that was really a turning point for him, as, as you can imagine. And he began to talk about his story. He told NPR this. He said, it had been locked away for 23 years and had wreaked havoc on my life and the relationships I had in my life, not only with my friends who really weren't even my friends, I didn't trust anybody. My wife didn't know the darkest things about me. I had kind of conned her into marrying me almost. It's a tough admission. I loved her dearly, so I projected who I wanted to be. But I would never let her inside because I always feared if someone knew the real me, they would run the other way. So we try to cover our shame with lies. He he tried to cover shame by killing himself. And we try to cover our shame in all kinds of different ways. Through perfecting ourselves, through trying to perfect our children, through religion. We can use religion to hide our shame. Addiction can be a way we deal with shame. We're ashamed because we're addicted. And then we feel so bad about that to kind of cope with the shame. We run back to our addiction to make us feel better again. It's a vicious cycle. We cover ourselves with smartphones in social situations so we won't have to interact with shame that we won't be able to handle that. And our remedies are always inadequate, aren't they? Our remedies are always inadequate. Uh, Shame keeps us from being vulnerable and being honest with other people. And if I'm not vulnerable, if I'm not honest with other people, I'll always be covering, I'll always be protecting, and I'll never experience life and freedom and joy and the healing of those parts of my life that I'm so ashamed of. But that's what we do. That's what our remedy is. We, we cover. We create our own coverings. Well, that doesn't sound like a very good remedy, does it? Uh, is there a better remedy? Fortunately, God provides a remedy for shame. And you just read it. You just read it in Mark chapter 15. Yes, this passage is about guilt. And how our guilt before a holy God is dealt with. But it's also about how God removes our shame. And we desperately need someone to remove our shame. Because quite honestly, we're kind of like the little kid who's broken the flat screen television. And we can't fix it. And our only hope is that mom or dad can can do something about it. And the cross is about God doing something about what we've broken. Mark 15 is about Jesus bearing our shame. It really 
begins the evening before in chapter 14, when Jesus' disciples shame Him, they reject Him and they run away. And then Peter, who we give such a hard time because he does deny Jesus, but at least, you know, he, like, he followed Him there at least. We ought to give Him a little bit of credit for that. But then at the end of the day, he breaks too. And he vehemently denies that he even knows Jesus. Can you imagine that if you're on trial for your life? And one of your best friends who had always said, man, I'm going to stick with you no matter what. If he suddenly said, oh, I, don't even, I, don't, I don't even know who this is. I don't, I don't even know who this guy is. Then Jesus is shamed by the religious leaders who trump up charges against him and bring false witnesses and condemn him and spit on him. Can you imagine if you hated the message so bad that when I walked down at the end of the service, you all spit on me? Maybe you want to sometimes, that's okay. Um, but, but can you imagine the, the, the humil- humiliation of being spit upon because of who you are and what you represent? He's shamed by the, the, the civil authorities. They're next in line as Pilate basically washes his hands of Jesus and turns him over to be crucified. Uh, he, he does, hey, offers like, hey, I'll free one criminal, I'll free one of these prisoners. But the crowd shame Jesus. They don't want Jesus. They don't want the guy who's walked among them and, and healed them and, and who drove out demons. They say, give us Barabbas. Give us the murderer. We'd rather have him set free than Jesus. And then this is the soldiers turn. And the soldiers basically get together. And, and it says that they, they, call, they get the whole battalion together. Like, hey, we got Jesus here. And a battalion could have been as many as... 600 men. And they make sport of Jesus. And they undress him. And they clothe him in purple to to mock him. It was a royal color, purple. And so they mock him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. They put a crown of thorns on his head. And they strike him. And again, spit on him and abuse him. And they take him to crucify. And they crucify him naked for all the world to see. He's living on our worst nightmare, wasn't he? Uh, the, the worst death you can imagine and experiencing it completely exposed. And then it's at that point that the passerbys get in on the act. Verse 29, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe in those who were crucified with him, reviled him as well. And then finally, almost unbelievably, verse 34 And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, There on the cross, Jesus had known the love and the presence of his Father for for all eternity. And the Father, as, as we sang a moment ago, the Father turned his face away. And Jesus is abandoned to death on the cross. Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him. 
and to put him to grief. Jesus was shamed publicly. Was public shaming possible? Why would he endure that? Why would he go through that? Hebrews 2 says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does it mean that he despised the shame of the the cross? Does it mean he's like, oh, I hated it, that was so terrible? Well, it was terrible. I don't think that's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. I, I think what he's saying is he looked at the shame of the cross. He looked at what he would have to un- endure to rescue his people and said, if that's what I've got to do, then I'll do it. I wish there was a better way, but if that's what I've got to do, then that's what I've got to do. If I've got to be shamed in that way, that's a small price to pay. A small price to pay for what? For the joy that was set before him. Well, what was the joy that was set before him? Being reunited with his father? Breaking the back of sin and sickness and death? And the joy of rescuing you. The joy of rescuing you. See, in some sense, you were the joy that was set before Jesus. And he despised the shame. And he endured the cross for you. Uh, Jesus bore my guilt. Jesus bore my shame. He bore these things so that you and I would know freedom. So we would know freedom from shame, freedom from guilt, freedom from condemnation. So that we would not be rejected, but so that we could be adopted into the very family of God. So that our guilt could be atoned for. So that our shame could be removed. So that we could be honored. Honored. Can you believe that? So that we would be honored. Because Jesus has borne the shame of our darkest secrets if we are in Christ. If we are trusting in Him. And if Jesus has borne the shame of those darkest secrets, then I no longer have to fear those. Jesus was shamed for me. And because of that, despite all of my sin and all of my flaws and all of my unworthiness and all of my failure to measure up, because of that, I am honored and rejoiced over and welcomed by God. The story is told of a young man at Bellhaven College in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, one day, he, he, had, he had fallen in love with this young lady. And one day, he overheard her brother telling the story about her to some of his friends. And basically, the story was that somehow she had this finger that was crippled, that was deformed in some way. And the young man who was dating her had no idea. Like he had never seen her hand or this finger. He didn't realize that it was deformed in this way. And so he immediately, as he heard parts of the story, he ran to the library where she was working. And he said to her, tell me the story and show me your finger. And she had kept it hidden from him the entire time they had been dating. And so she, she, she pulled out her hand. She told him the story. And she showed him her finger, and he he straightened it as best as he was able, and then he 
took it to his lips and he kissed her finger. He, he removed her shame. He covered her shame with his love for her. Uh, y'all, we've, we've all got shame and we all try to cover it. And that's actually the worst thing we can do with it. Brene Brown says that shame means three things to thrive. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. So my question for you this morning is, what are you doing to bring your shame into the light? What are you doing with it? I want, I want, you, I want to encourage you to, to bring those broken and messy parts of you, to bring those things to Jesus. Not to hide them, not to cover them yourselves, or try to cover them yourselves, but allow Jesus to cover them. Ricky Jones tells a story. There's a guy in his church who was getting ready to move. And some years before, this man had committed adultery, but he had confessed and been restored and, and seemed to be living this exemplary life. And, and Ricky asked him, he said, um, when, did, when did you really change? Like, what was it that, like, how, what came about that changed you so much? And this is what the guy said. He said, it's when, and Ricky was a pastor, he said, it was when you brought me before the elders, and I confessed things that I was deeply ashamed of, and I expected to be scorned, and I was ready for cold looks, and I was ready to be rejected, but instead they prayed over me, and they put their arms around me, and they embraced me, and they, they forgave me, and they loved me. He said it was at that moment that I realized that Jesus wasn't ashamed of me. And everything changed from that point on. Two things as we close. Number one, uh, you can't cover your own shame. You have to bring it into the light. You have to bring it to Jesus. Let me encourage you to do that. Let me encourage you to do that by talking to someone else. Uh, Maybe it's your mom or your dad. Maybe it's one of the elders. Maybe it's me. But talk to somebody about what it looks like to bring your shame to Jesus and have him cover it and have him begin to make you well. Uh, The church really is the place where we experience the work of Christ in dealing with our shame. And secondly, uh, the Avid brothers uh, have a song, and I'm surprised I I could wait this long in the sermon to use it. but, but they have a, a song called Shame. And some of the lyrics are this. I know the things I said to you, they were untender and untrue. I'd like to see those things undo. So if you could find it in your heart to give a man a second start, I promise things won't end the same. Shame. Boatloads of shame. Day after day, more of the same. Blame. Please lift it off. Please take it off. Please make it stop. But then the song ends this way. And everyone they have a heart, and when they break and fall apart, and need somebody's helping hand, I used to say, just let them fall. It wouldn't bother me at all. I couldn't help them. Now I can. Now I can. If, if, if you have had your shame covered by Jesus Christ, you can no longer say about other people, just let them fall. Because you've been adopted and honored when you should have been rejected and shamed. You have been helped by Jesus. And you know what it means to have your shame covered in the right way. And so now you can help 
others. Will you do that? Will you help to make this a place where people can come in in all their shame and experience the welcome of Jesus and his people? Let me pray for us. Father, there is so much that shames us. Things we have done. Things that have been done to us. And yet, Jesus, you have taken that on yourself in ways that we can't fully comprehend. So that we might be covered by your love and your welcome. So that we might be honored as sons and daughters of the King. Would you help us to move into that? And not stand in the corner of the room fearing that. But help us to move towards you and your love. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.